Okay, we will, we will get to Luke 3 here in just a few moments, guys. We're going to be in Luke 3 today, verses 21 and 22, the baptism of Jesus. The title of the message is The Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity. Um, I, want to, I want to read a short paragraph to you uh, as we get started. This is out of our 116 doctrinal statement on the paragraph of the Trinity. Scripture clearly reveals God to us in three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, consubstantial, and co-eternal. The triune nature of God is not a debatable or optional doctrine. It is a central truth of Christianity and an essential element of saving Christian faith. We have to understand, guys, we are saved by the, we are saved by the Trinity. It, we're studying that on Wednesday night. I mean, we see the Father's work in our salvation. Obviously the Son and then the Spirit. So it's, it's, it's God. It's the triune God that saves us. Um, to deny the Trinity is to deny God. It's to form another God. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Oneness Pentecostals. Make sure you make that distinction, guys. Oneness Pentecostals. Not Pentecostals. Oneness and others who deny the Trinity are actively suppressing God's truth and saving revelation of Himself. We think of atheists, right? In, in, in Romans chapter 1, we think of the, the, the crowd the other night, uh, the, the homosexual crowd, these type, of, these type of people that's suppressing the truth. Of Romans chapter 1, they suppress the truth that, that God has revealed about Himself. Right, they do. But false religions do that as well. They suppress the truth. Why are there false religions in the world? Because men don't want the one true God, so they suppress the truth. We don't like that God. As we'll see in a few weeks when we look at the Jehovah's Witness, their leader started that cult because he didn't like the doctrine of hell. So he started his own Bible study, which now has led astray millions of people. Because, you know what? I don't like the doctrine of hell, <laughs> but it's in the Scriptures. We don't go start our other religion. But we have to remember that, guys. False religions, they start... These false religions, all of them because men are, men are idolaters. They suppress the truth of God. Let me get back to the paragraph here. They're actively suppressing God's truth and saving revelation of Himself. Unless they repent and believe in the triune God of Scripture, they will abide forever under the wrath of God as idolaters. Thus we call all men in every place to repent and to believe, to believe upon the triune God. The only God there is. We unashamedly Preach the God of the Bible, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as the one true and only God. Those are strong words, but true words. So the, the, the Trinity, that's what we're going to just be reminded of today because it's in the text. But let's, uh, let's make a distinction here real clear. Make it real clear, guys. Anytime somebody asks you, oh, you believe in the Trinity, Usually what they're saying, you believe in three gods. That's usually what they're implying. No, we don't. So anytime you're going to defend the doctrine of the Trinity, it's always good to, to start with the, with the truth of the Scriptures that there's only one God. Okay, There's only one God. Since we're going to be talking about the Trinity today, we're not really necessarily going to be defending the doctrine of the Trinity in this text. We're just going to see the Trinity. I want to look at the Trinity just by way of introduction real quick. Let's be reminded of these scriptures. You can jot them down. A few from the Old Testament. A few from the New. But just first of all, being reminded that there's only one God. Christianity is a, is a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God, not multiple gods. Isaiah 43.10, for example. Before me, there was no God formed. And there will be none after me. That's pretty clear. <laughs> That's what, that's what Yahweh says. Before me there was no God form, and there will be none after me. Isaiah 43.10. Isaiah 44.6. I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. Very clear, right? Did you know Jesus uses those very words to describe Himself? In Revelation 22.13. I am the first and the last. Obviously, a claim to deity. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. 
God cannot be any more clear in His Word that there's only one God. So when, when somebody wants to argue with you that there are multiple gods or that we can become gods, no. There's only one God. God who is omniscient, who knows all things, who dwells outside of time, right? He says, um, there was no God before me. <laughs> Even in another verse, it says, I've not heard of another and so there's multiple verses like that. You get in Isaiah chapters 43 through about 46. There's many more. But clearly one God, not three gods. Amen? We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. The Scripture is very clear. There's one God. Now, a few verses in the New Testament where you can see that this one God is revealed in three persons. Very clearly. I think, I think we would all agree that the Father is God, right? Father is God. But even that's revealed in Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2, this is a common greeting that Paul would use in his letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then the next verse, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think many people argue that point that the Father's God. They start arguing about it when you start claiming that the Holy Spirit is God or when you start claiming that Jesus is God. But remember, there's only one God. So we're not talking about three separate gods. We're talking about one God revealed in three persons within the Godhead. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 real quickly. Hebrews chapter 1. Again, there's, we could flip literally on any page really in the New Testament. You're going to see something about the deity of Jesus Christ. But I love this passage here. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 8. Really the section is just a section on the writer of Hebrews defending Christ is being better and superior to the angels. But he says this, Hebrews 1, verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He, the Father, appointed heir of all things, through whom, he, through whom also He made the world. There we, see, there we see the Son being part of creation. And He is the radiance of His glory. The Son is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than, having become as much better than angels as He is an inherited and more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, Today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be to a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. This is the father speaking about the son. Let the angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And here's the verse that it's really leading up to. But of the son... He says, who's the He? The Father. Of the Son, He, the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Father calling the Son God. Is that not beautiful? That was the verse, Carl, if you remember, that I read. The Hebrew Israelites, there was actually crickets for a few minutes because there was no response. Because the whole discussion was, is Jesus God? You have the Father calling the Son God here in this text. And obviously Jesus claims to be God. That's why they picked up stones to stone Him. That's eventually what led Him to be crucified on a cross was His claim to deity. The Scriptures everywhere proclaim the Son is God. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 5 real quickly, we'll see a clear defense of the, from the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit is also God. But remember, only one God. So we don't have three separate gods here. We have one God, but we see Him clearly revealed in three persons. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? The Holy Spirit. And to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. 
clearly equates the Holy Spirit as being God. It's just common language in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit's God. Jesus is God. The Father's God. But there's only one God. So that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Obviously a very quick look at it. Just be reminded that it teaches these things. But, but don't think that the New Testament writers did not clearly say there's only one God. I think of Paul in 1 Timothy 2.5 writing to Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So just to be a reminder, guys, that that's what the Bible teaches, that there's one God. We worship one God. But He has been revealed in three persons. The Son, Father, the Holy Spirit. The first time you'll hear this argument when you're, when you're speaking about the Trinity, well, that word's never in the Bible. So it must not be true. Well, the word Bible is not in the Bible either. <laughs> but it's true. No, it's the meaning behind it. Trinity just means the doctrine of the, how God is triune. But like Bible, for example, it just means book. It's from the Greek word biblia, equals books. But we understand what the Bible means. Just because the word Bible is not in the Bible doesn't mean we don't believe in the Bible. Books. Same thing with the Trinity. Uh, early church father in the second century, Tertullian, who we looked at several weeks ago, he's the one who coined the phrase Trinity. Okay, that's where it came from. But the doctrine's in the Scriptures. The doctrine's here clearly in the Scriptures. But it, the, the phrase came up in the second century because what people say, oh yeah, that was invented at the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. No, it was not. It was invented by God in the Scriptures. So really get into our text today, though, guys, since we're talking about the Trinity, I just want to look at some of those verses that really defend the nature of God, his triune nature. But in these scriptures today, Luke chapter three, verse 21 and 22, we're going to see really two things in these verses is um, we're going to see Jesus Christ being baptized. And then we're going to see, obviously, a clear picture of all three persons of the Trinity present at his baptism. A clear defense of this doctrine of the Trinity. And so we're going we're gonna to look at his baptism, but I think really just the, the, the thing that stands out in this text is the doctrine of the Trinity. How we can see it, how, how you can defend it in the future from this very text right here. So let me, let me read the actual text here. Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we just come before your throne, God. We thank you. We love you. We praise you, Father. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, God, that indwells us. I thank you for your Spirit who teaches us. Father, I thank you for your Son whom you sent into this world to save us, to purchase our salvation to call us out of darkness into your marvelous light, Lord. We love you and we praise you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your uh, outline today, we're going to look at three things from this text. The first thing we're going to see, because we're going to look at each person of the Trinity here. And in verse 21, we're going to see the Son being baptized and praying. That's what we see the Son doing here. In this text, we're going to see the Son being baptized and praying. Secondly, we're going to see the Spirit descending and empowering. And third, we're going to see the Father speaking and approving. Clearly, three persons right here in this text. So the Son being baptized and praying, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while He was praying, heaven was open. So he was 30 years of age now. You can see that from uh, verse, uh, verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years of age. And then chapter 4, verse 1, which really happens immediately after this, the Holy Spirit leads him after his baptism out into the wilderness. Isn't that amazing? That the Spirit of God is, is the one who led the Son of God out to be tempted by the devil. But you see it right here. He's, he's 30 years of age. What do, we, what do we know here, guys? This is when his public ministry begins. This is the part I've been anticipating going through this book. We're finally getting 
to Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the story of Christ. And so this is when it begins. He's not in seclusion anymore. He's, he's being made public. And it says all the people... In, in uh, verse 21, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Obviously, meaning just those who had responded to John's teaching. There were many, countless, or no doubt many, being baptized. And, um, but it says Jesus was baptized. So just to, I'm going to look at a, a couple verses from some, some, some of the different Gospels to try, to try to get the picture in our mind, the context that's going on. So you have to understand that John and Jesus, guys, had probably never met at this point. Never met, more than likely. He said in, um, in John, John chapter 1, he makes this statement in verses 31, or in verse 33 and 34. John 1, this is John's account. Some of the religious leaders had been coming to him. The, 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 the priests and the Levites were sent from the Pharisees saying, are you the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not him. And in verse 33, 34, he, he says this. When the Messiah came on, he said, I did not recognize him. John did not recognize him. This very likely could have been his first time to ever see him. And it would be, their, if that's the case, it would have been their only meeting. This time right here. But at the same time, in a different way, we look at Matthew's account. He knew who he was in the sense of he knew who the Messiah was, meaning that he's the Son of God. So once he identified, okay, that this is him, this is the Messiah, listen to what he says here, because it, it really goes into this whole deal about Jesus asking, asking him to baptize him, to baptize him. Matthew 3, verses 13 and 14. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, once he realized he was the Messiah, he tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? In other words, he knew who the Messiah was, right? The Son of God. This is the one whom the Old Testament has promised. This is the one who the Father was sending. This is the sinless Son of God. And you're asking me to baptize you? Do you remember last week we talked about John understood? Talk about John being a humble man, right? And we talked about how he, he stated in, um, in Luke when we was in that text last week where he said, I'm not even worthy to untie the thongs of his sandals. You remember we looked at that? And what that means is I'm not even worthy to be your slave and you want me to baptize you? You're sinless. You're the sinless son of God. I'm not worthy to be your slave and you're asking me to baptize you. So that's what we have going on. It, because some of this language wasn't in Luke. So sometimes you have to look in the other Gospels to kind of get the full picture. All the people were being baptized and Jesus was also baptized. That's what we see in Luke. Another thing to note, guys, is John, John's ministry, before we really get into this text, you know, because we're really, we're really finishing up John. We finished up John last week and, and today, and then we're moving on to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as, as, and I think I mentioned this last week, John's ministry, as great as it was, it was only going to last for about another six months. John the Baptist. And then he would be in prison and beheaded. And it just got me thinking, guys. You know, sometimes we think, man, God, God will use me someday. If I can just get smart enough in the Scriptures, if I can just reach this level of maturity, then God can use me. Can I encourage you with two things with that? Yes, seek to know God more. Praise, praise the Lord. Study the Scriptures. But don't like wait. Don't like think you've got to be at some level for God to use you. God wants to use those who are just willing to be used. You think of John the Baptist and his ministry. And how he used him in such a mighty way in just really not that long of a period of time. That's why we are to make the most of every opportunity. Guys, God has given you today. That's all I can promise you. We're here today. We're alive today. God's given us today. So we may have all these plans in our mind for God to use us in some big way in the future. But you might not have that long. So let him use you now. I think of Rocky, right? Rocky, that was last... Those last eight months of his life was used for the glory of God. 
So let's model our brother Rocky. Because we may be eight months away from death. We may be eight days away from death. So don't wait. Be used by God, guys. Be used by God. He uses weak people. So that's who we are. Now, let, we have to ask this question, though, when we're looking at this. We can't, you, can't, you can't look at this, this portion here and not ask the question, why was Jesus baptized? <laughs> why was He baptized? He was sinless. So let's just talk about that for a few minutes. Because I don't think that's the main emphasis on the text. I think it's really in the next verse. When you see the Father speaking, that's really the, grammatically speaking, as you study this text, that, that's the main emphasis. Is when the, when the Spirit falls down like a dove and then you hear the Father affirming the Son. But it says Jesus was also baptized. And while He was praying, heaven was open. So why was Jesus baptized? Well, to correct a couple of these lies, and maybe you've heard of some of these, maybe you haven't. But, uh, for example, the apocryphal gospel, there's a, there's a gospel according to the Hebrews, right? One of the, one of the lost books that people will come along and say is the Word of God, but it's, it does, it's not in the canon. There was a lie in that gospel according to the Hebrews that he was baptized to please his mother and brothers. That's not why he was baptized. Or the Gnostics teach so that... Christ, so that the Christ Spirit could indwell the purely human Jesus. They say that's why he's baptized. That's not the reason. Because if you remember the Gnostics, they said that matter is evil, flesh is evil. And so they's like, he, he was baptized so that the, the, the Spirit Christ could indwell the human Jesus. Or even the Jehovah's Witness, they say he became the Messiah at his baptism. But that's not true either. We've already looked at it in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, that, that Christ is born. Christ means Messiah. No, the Messiah was born. He came into this world as the Messiah. He didn't become the Messiah at His baptism. So, so why was He baptized? Matthew 3, verse 15 tells us. And then we'll spend a few moments just discussing that. Matthew three fifteen. So the verses I just read that Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. John trying to prevent him, saying, I have, Lord, I have need to be baptized by you and you come to me? And then Jesus' response. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Uh, that's the answer that the Scriptures give. To fulfill all righteousness. So let's um, discuss that just for a few minutes. And, and really what that means. Because I think there's a couple of ways we can understand that, even that. And just to help us understand why he was baptized, guys. Because he didn't have to be. John MacArthur says this. According to John one thirty three, we looked at that a minute ago. God commanded... John the Baptist to baptize. Obviously, very clearly, he commanded John the Baptist to baptize. Therefore, he wanted people to be baptized. And it was incumbent or it was necessary on the righteous to do so, right? Those who believe upon Christ, no, it's no different with us. When we come to faith in Christ, we are to be baptized. That's the right thing to do. It's, it's been commanded. It's necessary that, that you're baptized. And so... Whatever God required the righteous to do, Jesus did. Even though He didn't have to, He did. Even things He personally did not need to do. Baptism is one of them. Here's another example, guys. Uh, flip over to Matthew 17 real quickly. Just going to look at this, just make this one point. Another example of that, about Jesus just doing that which God calls the righteous to do. Matthew 17, verse 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, this is Jesus and His disciples, those who collected the two drachma taxed came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when He came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons? Or from strangers. When Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, 
and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take it and give it to them for you and me. So you see the context of that little short section of Scripture is Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of the King. (laughs) He was exempt from paying the temple tax. In other words, he didn't have to. But to do what the righteous people do, what they've been called to do, he just did it. That's the easiest way to understand this. Let all righteousness be fulfilled. You know, and we can learn from this. Before we move on, we can, we can learn from this. Having this attitude of just doing what's right, guys. Of just being, going above and beyond as Christians to just do the right thing. Even when we don't necessarily have to do something, just humbly do what's right. What do I mean by that? Maybe you're on your job. You know, we don't need to be those who are demanding certain rights. You know, I don't have to do this. My gosh, I'm not going to do it. You know, maybe your boss asked you to do something. Sometimes it's just, especially to be a witness for Christ, just be above reproach. Just go above and beyond and do the right thing. Even if it's something you don't necessarily have to do. not talking about when somebody asks you to do something that's sinful. But but sometimes we get this mentality it's like we, we want to do just what we have to do. But we're to, we're, to, we're to model our Savior and just do that which is right. This whole idea of Him being baptized for us, guys, we're going to look at another aspect of it. He's identifying with us. Jesus is identifying with us, even in His baptism. He identified with us by doing what the righteous are required to do. That's one way to look at it, and that's true. But he also identified with us in a different sense when he was baptized. John's baptism, beloved, was a picture, right? Of a cleansing from sin. That's what it was a picture of. Repent for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized as evidence of that. So that's, that's what it is. He did not have to be baptized, but he chose to be. He chose to be baptized. He, he was identifying with us in our need for forgiveness and cleansing. Even though he didn't need that himself, but he was identifying with those who do. Isaiah 53, 12. If you guys remember, that's the chapter picturing the crucifixion of Christ. In Isaiah 53, 12, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. Okay? And obviously, that's ultimately speaking about what? The cross. But he's already beginning to be numbered with the transgressors, even here in his baptism. He's identifying with us. He's identifying with you and I, even even by being baptized. He's he's already doing it. He's already identifying with being numbered with the transgressors. I mean, is it not amazing that Jesus was baptized when you think about it? He's baptizing sinners. Next up, God in the flesh. (laughs) I mean, just the, can you imagine? John knew who he was. You know, he didn't necessarily recognize him, but once he, you know, oh, that's him. That's him. And now he's, the Son of God is asking me to baptize him. We'd be doing the same thing. Whoa, whoa. But it's an amazing thing that he was baptized, yes? Beloved, how much more that he was crucified? Let it sink in. It's the same principle. He did not have to be baptized, but he chose to be. He chose to identify with us. He chose to fulfill all righteousness. He did not have to be crucified. <laughs> Obviously, he didn't have to be baptized because of what it represented. He didn't have any sin. So why is he being baptized? <laughs> Beloved, he certainly didn't have to die on a cross. What does the Scripture say? Who is it that dies? The soul who sins are those who die. That's why we die. We die because we have inherited Adam's sin. Because of Adam's sin, all die. But Jesus, being conceived by the Spirit, He wasn't born with original sin. Nor did He have any of His sin of His own. So why did He die? Because He willingly, right? He willingly, voluntarily went to the cross and identified Himself with sinners. He identified Himself with you. He identified Himself with me. 
How? By becoming sin for us. So that we could become the righteousness of God through faith in Him. No, beloved, He did not have to be baptized in that sense. He chose to be. He did not have to come into the world. But He chose to voluntarily. He did not have to die, but He did. He did it for the joy that was set before Him. He gave up His life and He took it up again, beloved. And so that's just a way of understanding that in a sense, He didn't have to do this because this didn't represent He's not being cleansed from sin. But He identified with the righteous by doing what the righteous had been asked to do. He identified with sinners exactly the same way that He would identify with, with us in a, in a more glorious way by giving us life for our sins. And so, beloved, obviously another thing we can take from this, Jesus Christ was baptized. So it must be important. When the Scriptures command you and I to be baptized by immersion in water, it's important. We are to be baptized. We are to be immersed. We are to testify to the world that we have died to our sin. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. So I would ask you guys is to join me in, in, in seeking the Lord, beloved. Seeking the Lord for God to save sinners. For God to rescue sinners, which is what baptism is a picture of. So that we can see people be brought into our flock who have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and be baptized and discipled and sent back out. That's the, that's the picture we just read about in Matthew 28. So baptism is all, it's, it's a very important ordinance that Jesus has left us. We see him, it says he was also praying. He was baptized, but he was also praying. What, what do you think he was praying? Well, I mean, it doesn't say. Obviously he was praying. Picture of the Trinity, he's praying to the Father, Right? Maybe he's praying for the Spirit to be poured out upon him, to descend upon him. I bet you that's what he was praying. Maybe he was praying for the Father to, Father, testify of me. Because we know God answers the prayers of his Son. So maybe, maybe some of this is what he was praying. We know he was a man of prayer. And we can just model ourselves after him in so many ways. He was a man of prayer, but it says he was, he was praying. It says while he was coming up out of the water, still praying, it says heaven was opened. Maybe literally. Theologians disagree, but probably literally. Heaven was open. But what was significant about this? What was significant was that the divine revelation that came out of heaven, that's what was significant. God spoke. God spoke to humanity. That's what was amazing about this. Can you imagine being there on that day and hearing the voice of God? <laughs> beloved we have something even better do we not we have we have God's voice right here we have it with us we all have multiple copies of this book we have the word of God we have the revelation of God right here I love Psalm 119 verse 89 forever O Lord your word is settled in heaven you don't have to expect God to open up the clouds and speak audibly for you to hear God. We have the Word of God right here. The greatest gift given to us. Right? Christ Himself, who is the Word, our salvation, but He has given us His Word. His Word is settled in heaven, beloved. Do you want to hear God speak? Read your Bible. Do you want to hear God speak out loud? Read out loud. Read out loud. And beloved, think about the power that we have in the Word of God. For your own life, for your sanctification, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We have his divine revelation right here. Don't think that you need more divine revelation. Everything God has said that's inspired is right here. And anytime you think you have a word from God, it better line up with this. Think about when we go preach the word of God. Think about when you share the word of God with another soul, beloved. The Word of God. It means God is speaking to that person. When you share the words of Christ, when you share the Word of God, it's no different than this verse right here when God's speaking from heaven. They're hearing the Word of God. 
And many people hate it apart from the grace of God. So let's proclaim the Word of God. So we see the Son. We're just looking at the, we're looking at the three persons of the Trinity right here in this, in this short passage. We see the Son being baptized. Hopefully we got a little better understanding of why He was baptized. He just Because we've been called to be baptized, so He's going to identify with us. He's going to be baptized. And we see Him praying. Secondly, we see the Spirit in this passage. The Spirit descending on Him and empowering Him. The Holy Spirit. In 22, the first part of 22, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him, Christ Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. Literally in bodily form. Only Luke in in the Gospels, only Luke adds that in bodily form. If you looked at Matthew and Matthew 3, 6 and John chapter 1, verse 32, we saw that both Jesus and John saw this. And probably others saw it as well. Probably multitudes saw the Spirit descending like a dove in bodily form. We have to ask, what's the, what's the significance of the dove language? I think we can glean something from that. Listen to, listen to Puritan Thomas Goodwin. Try to give an explanation of this, and I think he's right on. For a dove is the most meek and most innocent of all birds. Think about a dove. Without bitterness, without malice, having no fierceness in it. I've never seen a dove be fierce. Expressing nothing but love and friendship to its mate in all its carriages and mourning over its mate in all its distresses. And accordingly, a dove was a most fit emblem of the Spirit that was poured out upon our Savior when He was just about to enter on to enter on the work onto the work of our salvation for as sweetly as doves do converse with doves so may every sinner and Christ converse together just a tenderness the language of tenderness when you come to know Christ right because the holy spirit is also called, also called the spirit of Christ you learn how tender of a savior he is you learn how gently he deals with sinners who deserve to be cast into the eternal trash dump of hell. And Jesus, through His Spirit, He deals with us very gently. I think Goodwin was simply pointing to the Spirit's faithfulness and His gentleness by by this language, this, this dove language. Beloved, you think about how faithful the Holy Spirit is. Think about how faithful the Holy Spirit is in your life to point out sin. He points out our sin. Praise God. Isn't it amazing? You know, you hear these, you hear these people. It's another, it's another cult. I've ran into these people. They claim that, man, once you're a Christian, you never sin again. They claim you can like, you're like sinlessly perfect after that. And I'm just like, now obviously we are being sanctified and we're being made more like Christ. And, and yeah, we're, 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 He's sanctifying us. But I'm telling you what, after I came to Christ, I see my sin <laughs> in a much deeper way than I ever saw it before, right? I mean, things I didn't even think were sin. God is showing me attitudes in my mind. and No. No, the Spirit is the one who reveals our sin. He convicts us of our sin. But you, know, you notice how He does it, guys? Doesn't He do it in such a gentle way? Let me remind you of something, guys. When you're feeling condemned for your sin, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points at our sin. And He points it out clearly. It's not confusion. It's not condemnation. He points at our sin so that we can what? We repent and, and, and come to Him and confess it for cleansing. No, when you're, being, when you're being stepped on and you're being pounded in the ground for your sin, that, you, that you're worthless, that God is done with you because of your sin, that is not the Holy Spirit. That is the enemy, the liar. He's a condemner. He's a liar. He's a murderer. Has been from the beginning. This is not the blessed Holy Spirit. The blessed Holy Spirit teaches us. He's faithful to us. And He's gentle with us. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is God. Beloved, we cannot become gods, but God lives in you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for that. Now, When we see this language of the Spirit descending on Jesus in His baptism, this doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have the Spirit already. Okay? Luke 1.35, He was conceived by the Spirit's power. Luke 2.40, filled with the Spirit's wisdom. Beloved, what this was, 
This coming down upon him was for the purpose of ministry. He's fixing to be launched into the, his public ministry by the Spirit into the desert. And obviously he goes to the testing 40 days and then he comes back preaching the kingdom of God. This was for ministry. Listen to Isaiah 61 verse 1. You can see this language in the Old Testament. Obviously speaking about Christ, the Messiah, the servant, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And this is quoted in Luke 4.18, by the way. Jesus quotes this, Luke 4.18. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Why? He's, he's empowering him for ministry. He has, set, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom from the prisoners. This is what this is. This is this Holy Spirit descending on him in bodily form like a dove to empower him. Listen to some of the different ways, guys. Just You can jot them down if you want. Of the different things that he was empowered to do by the Spirit. Now, do we remember, guys, remember that we looked at in a message several weeks ago that Christ, in, in Philippians 2, it says he emptied himself, right? He emptied himself of the, of the, of the personal... He, he didn't empty himself of his deity, but of the privileges, Right? of his personal prerogative in the use of some of his divine attributes. In other words, he fully submitted to the Father's will and to the power of the Holy Spirit. He was truly a man. And he submitted to the Spirit's power. And so in Luke 4, 1, by the Spirit's power, he resisted temptation. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to fly through these real quickly. But if you want to jot them down, Luke 4, 1, by the Spirit's power, he resisted temptation. Okay, in Luke four, chapter four, or uh, verse fourteen and eighteen, by the Spirit's power he preached the kingdom of God. And this is amazing, guys. This is the second person of the Trinity because he was truly a man. He depended on the power of the Spirit. In Luke ten twenty one, he worshipped his Father in heaven by the power of the Spirit. In Matthew 12, 28, he performed miracles by the power of the Spirit. Everything he did was by the power of the Spirit. Hebrews 9, 14, offered his body on the cross through the power of the Spirit. Do you see a trust here? <laughs> you see a trust? He is trusting in the Spirit. In Romans 1, verse 4, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was what? Raised from the dead. And by the way, it says the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Beloved, the very simple point to be reminded of is Jesus did not do these things by his own power. Okay? Because he was a man. And he, that's what it means when he, it says he emptied himself of these things. He set these privileges that were his to the side. There, now there were times where you see him. That when the Father, he, He's given him this power, right? He calmed the waves. He did all these different miracles, but it was only at the Father's prerogative according to the Spirit's power because He was truly human. He was even modeling that for us to trust in the Spirit of God. If Jesus had to trust in the Spirit of God for these things, how much more do we? Now, He didn't do these things by His power, but by the Spirit's power. The Spirit, right? Who is God? When He descended upon Christ, was giving consent publicly to Jesus. It wasn't just the Father, it was the Spirit. By the, by the Spirit, the second person of the Trinity was publicly giving consent to Jesus at His baptism. And it was demonstrated or, or shown to be true in His ministry. Acts 10.38 Peter talking to the uh, Gentiles. He said, you know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, did these things by the Spirit. 
by the Spirit's power. Beloved, the same is true with us. The same is true with us. We receive the same Spirit who comes to indwell us. That's what marks a Christian as a Christian. John says in his epistle, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. It says, without Him, you're not of God. You're not a son of God without the Holy Spirit. No, when He, when he comes, just like with Christ, right? We receive the Spirit of God, but then He empowers us for service. He empowers us for service. Blood, if you're going to resist temptation, it's going to be through the Holy Spirit's power. Hey, don't trust in your own power. Jesus said, without Him, we can do nothing. Right? We must trust in Him. That's this whole idea of abiding in Christ, walking in the Spirit, putting on the armor of God. It's all speaking about the same thing, saying it in different ways. We must be near to Christ. We must be near to Christ. We must be abiding in His Word, seeking Christ, being filled with the Spirit daily, walking in His strength. You want to preach the kingdom of God? You want to preach the gospel? Then you need to do it in the Spirit's power. Trust in His power. Oh, please pray for me when I preach. We must have the Spirit's power. Everything we do. What, I mean, what is it? We worship God through the, right? through the power of the Holy Spirit. We worship in the Spirit and in truth. Beloved, we haven't been called. I don't believe. I think these were apostolic gifts. I don't think I have the gift of healing to go say, hey man, you don't have an arm. In the name of Jesus, grow your arm back. If these men really had this gift, they'd go to the hospital and do it. They'd tell men like Rocky, get up and walk. Now God does that anytime He chooses to. And we should pray for those things. So we, we can't necessarily call, cause limbs to grow back or, or go to the graveyard and have somebody raised from the dead. But i tell you what we can do. And we've been authorized to do through the preaching of the gospel, which is much better, much more powerful. God, through the preaching of the gospel, by us being empowered by the Spirit, will raise a dead man. Will raise a dead man like me. Somebody who is dead in their sins and hates God. And we have been called. And yes, God does do miracles through His power when He chooses. And we're to pray for those things. We're to pray for our loved ones. But we're to remember that God does it. God does it. But any of these things that we do, obviously we're, we're not offering our body on the cross for the redemption of sinners like Christ did in the power of the Spirit. But God has called us to suffer. He's called to suffer for His name. We're to do that in the power of the Spirit. How is a man? How can a man be tied to a stake and burned alive like so many of our brothers and sisters have been and, and worship Christ while it's happening through the power of the Holy Spirit. Miraculous. But God will give you that same power. Stay near to Him. Now it's, it's, it, it's, it's, through the, it's through the power of the Spirit, guys. He empowers us for all things that we do. All things that we do. Seek Him. Seek Him to give you clarity. Seek Him to give you uh, Wisdom, seek him, seek him to give you discernment and seek his power. Seek the power of the Spirit, beloved. I believe we fail at that so much of the time. We need the Spirit of God and His power in our lives. He is an example for us, beloved. Jesus, in this, in this regard, the Son of God, yes, deity, yes, but fully man and a man who trusted in the second person of the Trinity to empower Him for works of ministry. And you and I are to do the same thing. Last, we see the Father speaking and approving. This is so important, guys. We see the three persons of the Trinity right here in this text. And so the, the, the heresy known as modalism, it views God as one person. The Father. And they say the Father also, it, they view God as one person, the Father, who also manifests Himself as the Holy Spirit at times, and then other times as the Son. That's heretical. I've heard of modalists try to 
defend this scripture that we're looking at today. And it's much like the Hebrew Israelites. You need a bottle of Advil because they can't make a lick of sense about it. We see three distinct persons. And a lot of times, like, like with different cults, like the Hebrew Israelites, people who, cults who deny the Trinity, they'll accuse you. Now, they don't know what they're accusing you of, but they'll accuse you basically of believing this lie of modalism. When you say, yes, I believe that the Bible teaches that there's one God, but there's three persons. And they'll say, well, you know, they'll, they'll ask you questions like, well, then who was Jesus praying to in the garden? Well, I mean, he's praying to his father. And it's like they think that I'm, that I'm, you know, saying Jesus is praying to himself. No, there's three distinct persons. I don't know if I'm making any sense. In my mind, I was. I probably lost you. But what we see here, we don't see there being one God and he's the father. And then sometimes he's the father. And then sometimes he's the son. And then sometimes he's the spirit. No. The teaching of the triune God is that there's three persons and the father is not the son. And the son is not the spirit. And the spirit is not the father. There's three separate. Does that make sense? And this is this is probably the clearest portion in all of scripture to defend that doctrine, guys. I pray to the Holy Spirit. I pray to the Son. And I pray to the Father. Now I think it's modeled in Scripture, right? J- Jesus gives us the model prayer to our Father who is in heaven. But the Holy Spirit is God. You want to cry out for the Holy Spirit to help you? Then do it. Because He's God. You want to cry out to the Son, Lord Jesus? He is God. But they're three separate persons. Amen? Let's, let's see the Father here. Let's wrap this up by looking at the Father speaking. And approving, giving approval of his son. And I really think this is the this is really the, the, the emphasis on this verse here. The father spoke his word of blessing. He spoke audibly for all to hear. Right? We talked about that. Divine revelation. All to hear that what? Jesus is his eternal son. I don't need anything else but that. The father says, This is my son. So when the Muslim says, Jesus wasn't the Son of God, I'm sorry, but I agree with the Father. (laughs) He was the Son. He did die on a cross, and He did rise again, because thus saith the Lord. If you guys remember a few weeks ago, we talked about, it was when um, we saw the word Son, the Son of God, and and we talked about that in uh, what that, anytime that Jesus declared to be the Son of God, it's a claim to deity. And right, you remember that we talked about in Jewish culture, the word son meant more than just male offspring. That word son, it has the meaning of one with or identification with or equal with. Right. He's saying, I'm one with God. And Jesus said that. Me and the father, hey, we're one. I and the father, we're one. And that's what that language of the son means. Equal with. One with, identification with, right? We looked at a few examples of how that word is used. What was Barnabas called? The son of encouragement. He was so one with, so identified with being an encourager, that he was just named the son of encouragement. Judas, the son of perdition. The Antichrist, the son of destruction. Why? Because they were so identified with their eternal destiny, which is hell. That's, what the, that's how that word son is mean. Used. Unbelievers in Ephesians 2. Sons of disobedience. You see how that word is used? D- unbelievers are so identified with disobeying God that they're just called the sons of disobedience. So when this word, the son of God is used, it's, it's, he, is, he is one with the Father. He is one with the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That's what this word son means. And that's what God says. You are my son, but not just my son, my beloved son. Just a term of affection. The, the, the relationship that the, that the father and the son had from all eternity, guys. A perfect, loving relationship that we cannot, we have no depths of understanding. And so, the confirmation, beloved, right here in this text, the confirmation of the father and the spirit should be enough for people to believe that this is the son of God. It should be, but we know that it's not. We know many standing there that day 
harden their hearts and, and live in opposition to Christ. These religious leaders were thinking of. That should be enough when you hear a voice from heaven and you see the Spirit descending like a dove. But what does that, what does that remind us of, guys? That a wicked and evil generation seeks for a sign. When, it, when, you, think about, when you think about the rich man and Lazarus, and what did Jesus say? You know what? He said, the, the rich man said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Send Lazarus back from the dead, right? I think I'm, I think I'm stating that correctly. Because if, if my brothers see him, they'll believe if somebody comes back from the dead. And Moses said, no, you know what? They had the words of Moses and the prophets. If they don't hear them, they won't even believe if somebody rises from the dead. And that's what our culture seeks. If you just, you just got to just show me a miracle, I believe. No, you won't. No, you won't because you hate God. You have the word of God. Had a person the other night at the, at the event we was at, really just making fun of us, just saying, you know, one, per, one thing I don't see around here is some God. Nobody sees him. You poor, pathetic Christians, you believe in something that nobody even sees. And I said, oh, it gets, it, it gets much better than that, man. I said, I don't only believe in him. I love him. I love the one I can't see. Like Peter, right? Isn't that amazing? We love him. I've never seen Jesus Christ, but I love him more than I love this woman right here. And I love that woman. <laughs> but the, isn't it amazing? No, no, we, just go with it, guys. When they make fun of you, so I, yeah, I can't see him. And I'm in love with him. I'd die for the one I can't see. What about you? What would you be willing to die for, sir? No, beloved, we have the Word of God. We don't, we don't need to see a miracle. We have the Word of God. We are a miracle. Praise God when He does visible miracles. Absolutely. Hallelujah. But this thing right here that God has put in me, this new heart, that's a miracle. That I can love God. We have the Word of God inspired by the Spirit of God. Oh, what, what greater way. There is no greater way. There is no more powerful way for the Son of God to start His ministry. It's like, you know, when you, ha when you have a man, I think about when I, was, um, when I was ordained or appointed to be this, the pastor of this church at 116 Church in Fort Worth, and the elders there, they laid hands on me. It's a public ordination, right? You're being sent. Okay? It, th this is almost like the Godhead laying hands on Jesus Christ, saying, this is the Son. Listen to Him. He has the authority from heaven. He is my son. No greater way to start the ministry. And these people still rejected him. Many of them. And then lastly, guys, you see in that verse, what does the father say? You are my beloved son. In you, I am what? Well pleased. Well pleased. I am well pleased. The phrase literally means you are my son. My favor or my pleasure rests upon you. The father saying that of the son. Why, why, why is that? Why is he well pleased? Why is, why is his favor and, and pleasure resting upon his son? Well, first of all, just because he is his son. I know I always refer to this chapter, but John 17. You see that love relationship between the son and the father. John 17. Before the world was, father. He's wanting his disciples to know that intimate love. So he's well pleased just because of who he is. He's his son, God, the son, second person of the Trinity. And secondly, he's well pleased because of his obedience. He was choosing to what identify himself with sinful humanity. We saw part of that today by being baptized. He was he was agreeing to carry out what the great work that the father had given him. Before the foundation of the world to go purchase the redemption of your bride, the love gift that I've given to you, the church, the gift from the father to the son. Now, son, you got to go die for him. You got to go pay the price. There's no way for any sinner to be accepted by me, except if you go fulfill all righteousness, you go obey my law perfectly. You go be willing to 
take that wrath that they deserve. So the Father is well pleased. You go and suffer and die for the redemption of sinners. Carl's not going to make it to the kingdom if you don't go die for him. Neither is Joshua or Jamie. You must go and purchase the salvation. The Father is well pleased with the Son. And obviously, that's what He's most pleased with was His death on the cross. Right? He was pleased with His obedience. He was pleased with His miracles. He was pleased with His teaching. He was pleased with His obedience while He was living, but no more was He pleased than when Jesus Christ laid down His life on the cross. And how do we know who He's pleased? Because He raised Him from the dead. Demonstrating to the world, this is My Son, and I am well pleased in His sacrifice. His sacrifice has satisfied My justice, My holiness. And I'm demonstrating that by raising Him from the dead through the power of the Spirit. This is My Son. He reigns supreme. So dear Christian, in closing, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, can I encourage you with this statement? Did you know right here where you're sitting, I don't care what you've done this week. Did you know that God is well pleased with you? He is well pleased with you. You say, man, that's kind of a bold statement. You don't know maybe what I did this week. No, He is well pleased with you. Now, is it because of your of your daily obedience? Is it because of your resisting temptation? Is it because of your... How many people you told about Christ? Now, do those things please God? Yes. But is that why ultimately God is pleased with you? No. Because if so, we'd be in trouble. We'd be in major trouble, beloved. Are we to resist temptation? Absolutely. Does He discipline us when we fall into sin? Absolutely. Are we to confess our sins daily? And be cleansed? Absolutely. That's not what I'm speaking of here. I want to encourage you with the reason that you are, that you, in God's eyes, He is pleased with you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, 5, and 6. We'll close there. Make a few comments about that. Because I want you to understand this. That God is pleased with you, dear Christian. And if somehow you think you have to have perfect obedience to please God... Guys, hopefully we can correct that. Because we would never please Him if that's the case. Amen? Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Dear saints, if it was, if it was according to your daily obedience, you will never measure up. Even as Christians, we will never measure up. It is only because of this fact Beloved, that Jesus, who is called the Beloved, right? He is the Beloved One. And through identification with Him, through faith in Him, we are in Him. We are in Christ. So your daily obedience, beloved, you will never measure up to the Father. But Christ, He had perfect obedience, right? He was perfectly obedient. He always measured up and you are in Him. The reason God can be pleased with you is because of His perfect obedience that was imputed to you. You are in Christ. God accepts you. God is pleased with you. God can smile upon you because of you're in Him. We've been talking about this whole language of, of Christ identifying with sinners. But when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? You in the Father's eyes are identified with Him. When He sees you, He sees His Son. 
Ultimately, that's why any of us were ever here. Well done. Because we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. None of that to neglect the daily obedience. The daily seeking. We should seek to please God, even though we'll ne- we could never do it perfectly in our daily lives. But we should seek that. Amen? But we're secure in Him. You're accepted in Him. When He sees you, He smiles upon you because of, because of His Son. Because of His Son. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we're so thankful for these truths, God, that you love us, God. You know we are but dust. Father, you know we can never save ourselves. You sent your Son to die for us, to purchase our salvation. You sent your Spirit to show us our sin, to convict us of our sin, to show us the depths of our depravity, our need for Christ. And it was all motivated by love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And so, Father, we thank You, Lord. We're speechless, God. We never could have saved ourselves. Father, we thank You for the work of the Spirit in our lives, God, to help us in our moments of weakness, to help us in our temptation. God, to help us to understand the things of God. These things are spiritually discerned. We thank You for loving us, God. We thank You for for not forsaking us, God. Father, we thank You for the imputed righteousness of Christ. We thank You that that positionally speaking, we are seated in the heavens right now in, in Christ. But practically, we are still on earth living this Christian life. So we ask for Your Spirit's help, God. Lord, we ask for Your Spirit's help to help us to live in victory day by day, God, but at the same time remembering whose we are, that we are Christ, that we are in Christ, that He is in us. And because of that reason alone, You love us. You love us with an everlasting love because of Your Son. And we thank You for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.